I mean, I, I just, I just couldn't be bothered. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure it's really good, but I just, I, you know, that I had such a bad experience in the last Dickens. I mean, you know, some Dickens is brilliant, but there's yeah. great expectations that Andrew Davis did. Hey, I was in um, Rochester before Christmas, <laughs> and, and I accidentally timed my visit to Rochester, the, one of the Dickens' mm-hmm. homes, as you know, uh, timed it to the opening of the new railway terminal at Rochester Station. I emerged from the station at 11am and there were two groups of people. There were a a load of workmen in orange tabards holding up a sign saying Rochester Station. They'd all been given one letter each and cheering. And then next to them were a load of Dickensians. There's loads of Mr Pumblechooks and... uh, (laughs) Micawbers. Mr Micawbers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a big thing in Kent. Is it sort of cosplay Dickens? That's kind of yeah, it's yeah. exactly what it is. Really terrifying. Yeah. Well, that's what Dickensian is. It's yeah. cosplay Dickens. Cosplay Dickens. Let's throw a load of Dickens characters in together and see what happens. Right. But it's right. on like it's twenty episodes of it, which is a huge commitment. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. Which is one of the things that we. Well, they've built feel. a massive set, haven't they? They've basically recreated Dickensian London. It just else, looks to me they? like yeah. it's the Doctor Who set, isn't it? Yeah. It's like for every. Episode of Doctor Who that's set in the 19th century. That's why I like Peaky Blinders, because I think it's got integrity. I don't think... Because it looks like Birmingham in the 19th century. It needs to look like Birmingham in the 1970s. (laughs) (laughs) That would be... Now that would be... (laughs) Now that would be a show. (laughs) The Bullring, yeah. The Bullring, yeah. Knocked down, of course. I know. Hello and welcome to Backlisted. We're coming to you this evening from the kitchen table of our sponsor, Unbound, the website where readers and writers meet to create great books. I'm John Mitchinson, publisher at Unbound. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Miller. I am the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. We're very pleased to welcome here today, as usual, Matthew Clayton, publisher and literary mole. More about moles later. And... Our special guest this week is Laura Thompson, author of an acclaimed biography of Nancy Mitford, Life in a Cold Climate, and also biographies of Agatha Christie and Lord Lucan. Welcome, Laura. Hello. But as usual, we start uh, where all these podcasts start with the question, Andy, what have you been reading? Uh, I want to pick up what we were talking about last time. I've been finishing Finnegan's Way. I've finished. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Extraordinary (laughs) achievement. The very definition of a smatter there. Thank you. you. Uh, Polite applause. Polite applause. I I finished Finnegan's Wake. I finished it the day after Boxing Day. I did read it on Christmas morning. I did read it on Boxing Day and I finished it. And I just wanted to add to what we talked about it last time that I had a realisation about halfway through Finnegan's Wake which was this I reckon I understood probably 10% of what was happening but the 10% that I understood gave me enormous pleasure and actually you know the sense of achievement of having read it has given me great pleasure as well but I sort of wanted to say to people that Finnegan's Wake I ended up feeling wasn't a book that people ought to be scared of because in a way, I don't. I, the only person who could ever fully understand Finnegan's Wake is the man who wrote it, sure. and he died in 1941. You know, I don't believe anyone can understand that book fully other than its author, and therefore that's not a reason not to read it. That's a reason to read it. You should feel happy to just and kind not, of... And not a reason not to enjoy it. Yeah, take what you can from it. And you don't read it take and think... Take 10%, is that what you're saying? Take your 10%, 10% and flee. <laughs> the point is, you don't read it and think this is pure gobbledygook or pure rubbish. You can sense a 
genius guiding hand behind it. And whatever you take away from it, you should be happy to take away from it. <laughs> it seems a weird thing to say, but having finished it, I, I can imagine reading it again and getting more from it, you know? Well, you know, is that not a shared definition of literature? It's a book that on the third reading you get more out of it than you did on the first, you know, as opposed to most of the stuff you read. I can also see that Finnegan's Wake is a book... I see why people spiral down into a vortex of never <laughs> reading or indeed thinking about anything other than Finnegan's Wake. So I've anyway, I finished that. Hurrah. Uh, so uh, as a, a break from uh, reading Finnegan's Wake and also because I watched Over Christmas on the telly... Sorbet. Uh, so the, the uh, adaptation of Agatha Christie's and then there were none. I, mm. I'd forgotten, Laura, that you've written a book about Agatha Christie. Mm. So this is, this is wonderful. So I watched and then there were none. Yeah. I watched the first episode and I bet after that. Yeah, yeah. I really didn't like it. Loads of people I know so really glad loved you didn't it. Like it. Oh, I was no. I was so uh, style over content. Mm, it was mm, awful mm. anyway. Oh, I'm but so, I, glad. so I decided Just... that I would read Third Girl mm-hmm. by Agatha Christie. So I've been reading Third Girl by Agatha Christie. For anyone who doesn't know this book, it was which there may be some. It was written in nineteen. It was published in 66. published in sixty seven and written in sixty six. So swinging London, and it's yeah. her swinging London novel. It's, Agatha Christie in miniskirts. It's Poirot. Yeah, it's Poirot talking about ZLSD and uh, <laughs> ZPEP pills. And uh, what's brilliant about it is it's got like quite a few Chelsea Bohemians and uh, Dolly Birds, and all the Chelsea Bohemians and uh, Dolly Birds speak like. Like characters from a 1930s Agatha Christie novel. Oh, oh. Um, now, I'm going to come in and defend my girl here because I was just about to say, I think their lingo is quite good. Yeah. I think no, the girl... Well, yeah. I've, yeah. No, you really don't think. I have to declare an interest. I, I, I probably love the 1960s more than <laughs> anything else, more than my own family. Okay. So I, I'm kind of very tuned in for the for the okay. for the bum note on that. Yeah. But there's also I just must add one thing about it that I, I liked it. I did enjoy it. It was a relief after Finnegan's Wake to, <laughs> to go from Finnegan's Wake. It sings a lot, doesn't it? I had a go. I quite enjoyed it. I'm but, not a huge aficionado. Did but, you read it with the assistance of ZLSD? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had. Finnegan's Wake is kind of like literary LSD, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah I was going to say there's a logic to the, the hallucinatory quality of um, that's Very implicit true. within Very Third true. Girl. I think I shall write a comparative study of the two books. <laughs> um, I think I would be rich. Yes, rich. Is there any evidence um, that Agatha Christie had ever struggled with Finnegan's Wake? <laughs> there's no evidence. No. I like to think she did. Her brother, uh, her brother Anyway, while I was reading it, I was thinking uh, there was a specific bit quite early on where they're talking about Hercule Poirot's moustaches, his famous moustaches, and for some reason... Did he have more than one? He thought you call them moustaches. Do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that is true. Well, if only Nancy Mitford were here to to correct us. (laughs) Anyway, I was was thinking, so the the image came into my mind of that that photograph of Marcel Proust reclining. And I got stuck in my head that if you substitute the name Marcel Proust for Hercule Poirot, first of all, you get the brilliant image of Proust going around solving crimes (laughs) via aesthetics, which which I thought would be great. But also, I got to this passage. I'm just going to read this out. This is unbelievable. Listen to this. This is the start of Chapter 15 of Third Girl. And I'm changing the name here to Marcel Proust. At Marcel Proust's elbow was a tisane prepared for him by Georges. He sipped at it and thought. 
He thought in a certain way peculiar to himself. <laughs> it was the technique of a man who selected thoughts as one might select pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. In due course, they would be reassembled together as to make a clear and coherent picture. That's the Proustian method right there, as, defi <laughs> as defined by Ms Christie. So I did enjoy it very much, yeah. Before we move on, Laura, what would be your one adaptation of Christie that one should watch? What, what would it, what oh, would it be? interesting. Well, I mean, most people raved about that, and then there were none. Because I do, I, I do think, Andy, I am going to say here, because there, there is this idea that she is, you know, stuck in perpetual 1932 with Vicar and crumpets and all that kind of thing. And I do think she covered her century more broad-mindedly than she's sometimes given credit for. And I do think... I take your point about the 1960s thing. Of course, she was in her late 70s oh, when she wrote that yeah, book. Yeah, but yeah. but I, I think there is a kind of feel for... I thought it was quite sassy, some of the yeah, dancers. Yeah. She's hey, she's game. That <laughs> painter's like, he's got that sort of Simon D campness about he him. He very much has. He's a peacock. He's like, described yeah. as a peacock with lavish hair. Yeah. yeah. So I used I... to work for one of those. Another story. <laughs> I, I had, had recommended to me the novel that she wrote after Third Girl, which is called Endless Night. No, that's brilliant, but not well adapted in answer to your right. question. But... I mean, I didn't. I don't really like any of them very much. I didn't really like the David Death Sushi. on the Nile. Which one? Um, Rita Houston off. Oliver, yeah, Rita Houston off, and a kind of it's a bit of a gang show, isn't it? That on every Christmas. <laughs> yeah. No. I think the problem with Agatha, Agatha Christie is almost certainly, it seems to me, the adaptations is that they're the ones that get dated. I was quite struck picking up Third Girl and and kind of enjoying it. I mean, I know it's a pathetic thing to say, but she's a really good storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> is she a master? Two billion she, copies on the front page. Is she a, is she a master storyteller? <laughs> I think she probably is. Yeah. Actually, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I think the adaptations, they either go for that sort of art deco, everything, yeah. Yeah. E e you Period know. Period piece kind Burr of. Yeah. Exactly, yes, that's it. Or else they'd go down the, and then there were none. Now, Agatha Christie didn't know that people had sex, so we'd better put in as much as possible, yeah. which is it's just insanely OTT, although people seem to like it. I think yeah. you and I are the only people who didn't. So you, you, me and Danny Baker are the only people who didn't <laughs> oh, like it. Good man. <laughs> Um, I once made a terrible error about Agatha Christie. I said she played tennis in the nude, and it <clears> turned out that was Enid Blyton. It's <laughs> <laughs> an easy mistake to make. <laughs> not so. Not John, which so. <laughs> brings me effortlessly. <laughs> what have you been reading? Not, I'm sadly about as far away from Agatha Christie and Enid Blyton as it's possible to get. I've been reading a, a book by Roberto Saviano, the Italian writer, called. Zero Zero Zero, which is a very, very strange, odd, powerful book about the cocaine trade. To give you a flavour, it, it the, the, the line on the cover is, when you look at cocaine, you see powder. When you look through cocaine, you see the world, which you think is, well, quite a big claim, but not, <laughs> nowhere near as big as the claims as Saviano makes. Now, you should know that Saviano wrote a, a very famous book called Gomorrah, and this so enraged the, uh, the Italian mafia that he lives under permanent house arrest. Um, and can't go anywhere without armed guard. So he's a, he is a brave guy in so lots of ways. Can we call him the Salman Rushdie of cocaine? Yes, you could say he was the Salman Rushdie <laughs> like, of organised like crime. Organised crime. I like sorry. Salman Rushdie. He likes hanging around with Bono. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, he's a, he's become he's got a million Twitter followers now. He's a big. Right. I mean, so there are certain issues with this book. One of the major issues with the book is that it's written in a kind of sort of rhapsodic, not quite sure whether it's sort of works or not style. There are, there are some brilliant 
brilliant passages in it, but you begin to notice that there's not a lot of what you would call sourcing. There isn't a lot of, and it also is incredibly confusing. I mean, the cocaine trade is, is disgusting and terrible. And he's angry, very angry about it. And he, the point of the book, I guess, is on one side is to say, look, we all think this happens in Mexico, but in fact, we're all complicit. You know, cocaine is rife. The UK is where all the money is laundered. It's a, one of the huge export markets for cocaine. But at the other side, it's a kind of a terrible sort of top trumps of cruelty. I mean, you, the, the book is full of the most awful and disgusting stories of excessive cruelty but there is a kind of weird thing that happens as you you realize that you kind of lose the names it's just one strange l this and l that and l loco and l chapo and, yeah. and he makes the most extraordinary claims you know sort of saying that the meeting of, of the mexican cartels was the origin of the modern world at some point he also <laughs> says that that there's no market in the world that brings in more revenue than the cocaine market and you feel like saying uh mobile phones over a trillion yeah. <laughs> over a trillion dollars so he's making a kind of slightly sort of hysterical case the other thing is uh, which has come out a lot of it is kind of yeah, quite was, quite lazily taken from I was wikipedia yeah, I was from other that. journalists none of it is is properly sourced knowing what it's like to get green ink letters if you make one qi fat long Actually, I'm slightly amazed that Penguin Press have gone with it, but they have. It's been a, and it's been a huge hit. It's powerful. I mean, it's. I don't think the guy's a bad guy, but it's. And he's kind of compared himself to Capote, sort of saying, "Well, you know, I'm obviously literary. I'm obviously doing something." Anyway, I, I, I'm not. I'm so... not. Gonna, I'm not going to be buying this for everybody for for next Christmas. <laughs> but it certainly wasn't. It was a really interesting kind of. Uh, Corrected yeah, to yeah. turkey, go in fact, my case, goose, yeah. and all the other Christmas festivities. Yeah. Dickens he ain't. You see, my problem with this book is books about cocaine fall into the category for oh, me. I of, know what's coming. Are they just bloke books? <laughs> I don't care how good it is or bad it is. I'm just never going to read it. I found a review of this book online that says a five-star review, and it said, this book is essential for anyone with even the slightest interest in the world at large. So I thought, well, that's good. That lets me off the hook. Biographies of Joe Strummer and books about football. <laughs> you know, I saw Goodfellas 25 years ago, too, sure. but I got over it. <laughs> I just, I can't, okay. I can't, I just... I, I agree with you. There's a lot of bl terrible bloke stuff out there. I think it's, I think Saviano is a more, just because of the strangeness of his life, and I think Gamora, which I've also read, it was an interesting book, although that seems to, it was afflicted by the same problems. But, yeah, I'm not sure about this kind of hybrid non-fiction. Yeah. And I'm thinking, Laura, when you're writing a biography of somebody, you have to make sure that your, you know, your sources of, uh, it's, I, I, as a reader, don't want to be told, oh, I made quite a lot of it up. Do you like the reimagined dialogue that you find in lots of non-fiction books these days? You know, where they imagine that they were there in the scene and they'll report dialogue of something. That... That's shocking, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I find it hard to accept, I suppose. It's like Jean Plady. <laughs> oh my god you are the gene playdy of powder anyway well i think probably that's enough on what we've been reading i think we should move uh hurriedly on to, yeah. the, to the core the meat of the podcast which is nancy mitford's novel the blessing Andy, will you do the uh, yes. will you do the blurbing, please? The now traditional backlisted exercise, Laura, of um, 
regardless of the quality of the book in this case, uh, Nancy Mitford's The Blessing, we always like to, rather than pracy the plot on our own terms, we like to read the blurb out the back. Because what we've discovered is blurb is a thing that wasn't ever meant to be read out loud. So, but we like to. Can I tell you a great C. Day Lewis thing about? Yeah. It? He said the sonnet, the detective story, and the blurb are all basically that. That's the most perfect crystallization of literary form. Did he? Yeah. What were the blurbs like on his books? Uh, <laughs> quite short. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's time now for an advert. This is the blurb on the latest Penguin edition. On the latest Penguin edition of Nancy Mitford's The Blessing. Here we go. It isn't just Nanny who finds it difficult in France when Grace, along with her young son Siggy, is finally able to join her dashing aristocratic husband Charles Edouard after the war. For Grace is out of her depth among the fashionably dressed and immaculately coiffured French women and shocked by their relentless gossiping and bed-hopping. When she discovers her husband's tendency to lust after every pretty girl he sees, it looks like trouble. (laughs) (laughs) And things get even more complicated when little Siggy steps in. Mark of ellipsis. (laughs) The the blessing is a hilarious tale of love, fidelity and the English abroad, tailored as brilliantly as one of Dior's new-look suits. (laughs) I think that's cruel as a man who has to write blurbs every day. Oh, we've all had to write blurbs. I feel... I feel that's unfair for the poor person that had to write that. I've struggled with blurbs. Everyone's struggled with blurbs around this table. I think the thing about about blurbs is that uh, very few people actually read them in depth. The trick to them is to create something that where your eye glosses over quite quickly. You see certain key signifiers that you think you might enjoy. So it is a little bit unfair, Matthew, but try not to <laughs> try not to worry. Pi- I'll try not they're to. They're pitching it as sort of chicklers, aren't they? they which very is, much are, are, yeah. Which is jolly interesting because she is, in a way, she has got that slight chicklet aspect to her, Nancy. She does sort of chat onto the page, you know, rather than apparently write a sentence. It, it, it does, one of her friends said her books read like an enchantingly clever woman telling a story down the telephone. And that <laughs> is... Very good, very good. Yeah. But it's a, with her, it's a, a knack because there's, there is actually quite a lot more going on. But she's got this, particularly by her mature style, this is her seventh novel. She wrote four sort of more immature novels. Then she wrote The Pursuit of Love, which I think is her best. Then she wrote Love in a Cold Climate. Then she wrote this one. Uh, and she's in her 40s by this time, and her voice by this time has got this wonderful ease you feel so yeah. comfortable with. Can I just interrupt? Just a bit of context around that's mm. quite interesting. I think that it's worth... It's significant that The Blessing is the third novel that she writes in a six-year period. Yeah. And that the first of those three novels, The Pursuit of Love, was a huge bestseller when it was first published immediately it was a, it was sensationally successful two years later love in a cold climate similarly successful so this is this is that difficult third and novel in well, six years as i say she'd written these four she wrote her first book when she was about 25 or something, Highland Fling, and they were sort of 1920s you know sub Evelyn war but good you know Pigeon she pie, had was that, that- Pigeon Pie, yeah, is, is, is a phony war novel. And she's she's like, what was your phrase about Agatha Christie? A, a master storyteller. And that... <laughs> yeah, master She's got storyteller. the gift of readability. <laughs> she had it from the, you know, she just has. So The Pursuit of Love, which is 
More or less autobiographical. It's the story of her family. In 1945, the family had all fallen apart by that time, but she recreated them as fiction and it was incredibly successful. Same as Bride said, revisited. They came out more or less at the same time and they're conjuring a, war- a world that was falling apart by that time, mm. but the people still responded. Love in a Cold Climate, again, set in the world of English country houses, all that kind. And then she herself had moved to Paris after the war and stayed there until her death in 1973. And she started writing about France, and I think people just felt that was less innate... You know, she wasn't innately producing something that was her own, from her core, if you like... It was a world that she'd kind of fallen in love with later on. And I think Philip Hensher said her relationship with France is intricate but not deep, which I think is a very good way of putting it. And there is this slight sense in the blessing of, oh, I'm in France and it's all so lovely. Oh, my God, I'm slightly hysterical. But, (laughs) you know, so Grace is the English woman who falls in love with the French man and everything French, just as Nancy did. She had her French lover. Yeah, I was going to say, because she, she, Palevsky was her... Yeah, Gaston Palevsky, who was General de Gaulle's right-hand man in London during the war, and Nancy started an affair with him. And he looked nothing like the guy in The Blessing. You know, he was a... Who was kind of textbook, sort of... Yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of... Dashing him. Dashing, sort of tall. Dashing yeah. soldier. And you yeah. say they fall in love, but that's... I mean, it happens really quickly, doesn't it? Yeah. Kind of almost casually. But that, that's a wonderful thing about Nancy Mitford as a writer. I mean, I'm really interested in talking about Nancy Mitford as a writer. One of the things that she does brilliantly and very almost idiosyncratically is plot happens in a line or two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there are long, hilarious passages of dialogue and yet the birth or death of somebody or the information that's given to the reader that Grace is pregnant before she miscarries, yeah. that happens in, in a line. Uh, you, this happened when I read, I read um, Love in a Cold Climate quite recently, within the last few months, and I had the same thing where I would suddenly stop and reread a short sentence in which something really significant seemed to have happened. I love that, but yet you don't feel the books are underplotted. You feel they are constructed absolutely to a correct set of rules that she sticks to. Well, what I I loved about it, I mean, I went in, you know, slightly my class warrior head on and said, I've got another (laughs) another book of bloody pointless aristocrats and... But actually, it's she writes so you well. You've got class warrior. Uh, I do. You've never seen my... <laughs> no, I haven't. They come out later. Yeah. Um, but the <laughs> thing is... It really looks like the bust of Mars. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> don't, uh, but they, they, um, the, the brilliant thing is that she does just hook you. What I loved about it was the sense of, you know, everything's... You know, these these are very wealthy people. She's Grace comes from a wealthy family. Charles Edouard from, uh, from France is, you know, very, very, very kind of... Uh, French sort of minor aristocracy, and you feel that they're living they're living in this sort of charmed world. But very early on, you begin to get the sense of things not being quite right. Of I mean, she manages this creeping sense of sort of, um, you know, without giving away as they say spoilers, the climactic scene where you know the, the, she decides she has to leave her husband. She prepares you brilliantly for it, and, and like you say, the ability to to do things with utter economy. I mean. I love the line. You know, she's talking about the English that 
somebody talk, right, talking one of the French characters, or they're all half mad, a country of enormous, fair, mad atheists. <laughs> I just, it's kind of brilliant. Enormous, yeah. mad, fair atheists. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, like all good fiction, I mean, I think the plot is managed brilliantly. And the, the blessing, we should say, of the title is the child, mm. the single child, Siggy, who is one of the most monstrous and brilliant child creations in all, all <laughs> literature i think it's just i said well i think i think siggy as a character was probably my favorite character really? in the book really yeah as a brilliantly precocious precocious child. unique little monster that i hadn't little... encountered in in mm. in literature before oh, it's uh, terrific you see who i love is the old lady madame uh, oh, what's yeah, her name Rocher Disney, yeah. who's mm. 80 and Gusts of so, yes exactly she's so <laughs> sexy and she goes to that english dinner party and they all want to show off their french and because she never stops speaking english and praising everything English, she says, "Oh, the joy to wander in the Woolworth." It's <laughs> <laughs> brilliant in the Woolworth and the the DH heavens. <laughs> she is, pr- and I yeah. love. You see, this is the, the, I love these things about Nancy that the people of they're all about sort of forty, and she's eighty. And there's this sense that when you get older, you, that's when life starts getting really good and you start having yeah. a wonderful time and you don't that's... have to give up any pleasure just because you've got practically two feet in the grave. And young people are regarded as... The, it's the best line in the whole of Nancy Mitford for me because there's this frightful sort of joke American who says to... Yeah. Um, Dexter. Dexter. <laughs> says to Madame Rocher, what do you do for your young people here? How do they amuse themselves? And she says... They're young. Surely that's enough. Why do they need to amuse themselves? <laughs> and I think of that all the time because it's so sort of... It, that's pure Nancy. It seems like nothing. But there's actually rather a lot to... The book is, as you say, John, there's a kind of a stringency to the book. Yeah. And it, it sometimes amazes me that women like Nancy so much because she really gives women quite a tough time, you know, if your husband is playing around, but nevertheless, in every other way, he's attractive and desirable, you should really turn a blind eye. That is her message. Also, but I think the brilliant thing about her as a, a writer in these books, if we're talking about the three or maybe four, if we include the one that follows this one, yeah. Don't Tell Alfred, yeah. is I find her wonderfully democratically <laughs> merciless. Yeah. yeah. She's yeah. very happy yeah. to find the feet of clay in whichever character she's talking about, mm. even her heroes and heroines. Mm. And she either she's very good at suggesting to you, the reader, whether she likes them or she dislikes them. So even if she's talking about their flaws, if she likes them, she'll let you know, and if she dislikes them... You, you know. Sure. Well, or, and when it's the American, she lets you know with a fairly heavy... <laughs> She's not overly subtle about some some things. Well, this is me wearing my biographer's hat, and I'm sorry if I'm going into the territory of inventing conversations here. I think there's an element... Because her own lover, Polevsky, was compulsively unfaithful, um, and she had to live with it, you do get a slight feeling in the blessing of her trying to explain her own situation to herself and sort of saying... You know, if a, if a man is everything to you, but nevertheless he has this recreational desire to sleep with other women, and if he's attractive, they're going to find him attractive too. Why can't you live with it? That was her own situation. Yeah. And everyone just says to Grace, it's your duty to stay with him. Nobody even sympathises with Grace that she's being, that her husband is, as we would see a modern woman, making a complete fool of her. 
it's a stern view of it, it's a very romanticized book in another way it's a very very realistic book how do you live with yeah. love how do you make it work how do you make a marriage work i mean incredibly I'm, i thought incredibly modern in that way yeah. I, I really thought that um and i mean there's some fantastic i mean i don't think she is a satirist in, no in i don't tra- no, absolutely agree with you yeah. but the portrait which i i think you 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 in your wonderful biographies say that the the captain who is this avant-garde theater director mm, sort of based on uh, cyril connolly has all these all these women kind of big boned women with bare feet and i mean they're, they're bohemians blue look, feet blue yeah. feet yeah look <laughs> they're proto beatniks they're proto beatniks yeah. and uh and they're kind of you know their sort of thing is to get just to go off if they feel they're being badly treated by a man they go off and have an adventure but they come up out of the book a lot less well than grace i mean you kind of end up really admiring grace and if i'm right grace and uh charles edward uh, reappear in the next novel yeah they do um, yeah. kind of happier mm. and, and more I'd like to ask, um, Laura, we, we talk about this book as being autobiographical and related to things in Nancy Mitford's life, but if we didn't know anything about Nancy Mitford, yeah. you know, what would we think this novel was about? <laughs> I, I, I actually think it, of, my, of the novels of hers I've read, it's my favourite because, because it seems to me to be about the thing you were just talking about, yeah. the idea that... It's a challenge to an English way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. You know, that you were saying that she's that Grace is never sympathised with. No. And actually that seems to me to be one of the fascinating things about the book, a constant challenging of your assumptions about what constitutes proper behaviour yeah. in a given situation. Yes, I mean, but you say it's modern, John. Uh, to me, it's... It, Maybe not, yeah. I mean... That, I think you'd be assassinated if you wrote a book like this now. I mean, I might, uh, yeah. I, I might be wrong, but... I, it, she'd she, absolutely be assassinated. Yeah. She really because, is... Why? Because it's kind of like... Because it says get it's put up with your husband's yeah. infidelities and if you, you know... Well, there's that great scene, which is the one of the... Another, I, I don't know how much we can give away, but we, she comes back and she confesses to her father... Sir Conrad Allingham, who... Um, he's an old bee, isn't he? Yeah, he's great, though. I she says, I she could says my, my, basically saying, I've left my husband because he's been unfaithful. And he said, well, steady on, darling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it seems like you're being a little harsh on him. He, he seems, you know, seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah. There's that really, the, the, towards the end of the book, too, where the, 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 the woman whose name I can't remember, who is the marvellous septuagenarian, mm, mm, says, mm, you were, I, I presume you were still, you were, you were still basically, you were still sleeping together. Yeah. So yeah. if you were still sleeping together, he was sleeping with other people, what's the problem? Yeah. But it uh, is. And that is the, you're right, that is the kind of message of the book. Oh, the the women he's sleeping with are married. I mean, it's not it's not a kind of you know men can sleep with people and women have to. Sleep. I mean, if Grace had wanted to have an affair, that would be okay. Yeah, mm. you know, it's it's just a sort of meditation on how you sort of uncompromise in a way. Mm, mm. I do love this. I, I, I just a great little thing. Madame Rocher, who is looking through her lorgnette here. I love this. She's saying, talking about modern youth. I might do a really bad French accent, maybe I shouldn't, but I'm glad it's not me growing up now. What a world for them. Atom bombs and no brothels. <laughs> what will parents do about that? After all, you can't very well ask your own friends, can you? I suppose they'll all end up as pederasts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you probably wouldn't get away with that easily in a modern novel. Would this novel have been considered shocking in 1951 in any way? 
in a way. I mean, you're saying it would be you'd be assassinated now? Um, no, I don't think. I mean, he's you know their dinner party talk. I know there's a bit when Charles Edouard says, "Oh, it's tough for us men now, isn't it? We we have to deal with abortions and this and that." And you you sort of think that's their chit chat. I don't think people were shocked. Mm. No, I don't think they were. And I know, um, well, Love in a Cold Climate, which is all about, there's an awful lot of homosexuality in it. And Harold Acton, who was Nancy's first biographer, said the non-judgmental way in which she portrayed the, the gays in Love in a Cold Climate helped change attitudes. Yeah. They didn't like it in America. But she said, I shall never write about the other kind of love because this kind sells much better. <laughs> but um, she she doesn't judge ever, I don't think. she um, She's not a satirist. I agree with you, John. There is a sort of benign... The, the style is so benign and smiling. She's she's not as good a writer as Muriel Spark. In my, but there's that assurance in the voice yeah. that that is similar and that kind of... There's a line in Muriel Spark when she finds that her boyfriend's having an affair, and she, her remark upon it is, "I dearly love a town of events." So she's not she's not <laughs> upset. She's just, and that's quite Mitford, I think. They sort of have an attitude to life that is very absorbing to the reader, very reassuring to the reader, even though it is astringent. And I just think the full blown Mitford voice is really at the heart of what makes this novel good. Yeah. I, I read it at the same time as I was reading the letters that Nancy wrote to Hayward Hill. Oh, yeah. So Hayward Hill is the bookshop, the wonderful bookshop still going in Mayfair on Curzon Street. It's a tenuous link coming up. Right? It's relatively tenuous. Yeah. yeah, I think we could we could describe it as such. So um, I read it at the same time. So Nancy worked in Hayward Hill during the war. I think she managed it mm. during the war. And so she wrote these wonderful letters, this wonderful collection, in fact, that the bookshop, I think, brought out between the two of them that goes over the whole course of their life, really. And it's interesting that readability is is there in the letters. It's there, you know, from the first page, Mm. you're straight in there and you're already on page 10. And they have that same sense of gentle teasing that you get in the book that's really, it's without kind of rancour or bitterness, um, yeah. And it's full of wonderful. There's a my favourite bit in it is as a which is in fact Hayward Hill talking, but it could be Nancy, where they're describing a um, a dinner party that um, Hayward Hill has, and the guests get quite drunk um, because the food doesn't arrive till late, and his wife falls over and hurts her leg. And she says, oh, God, I can't bear to look at the wound. What does it look like? What does it look like? And one of the guests who's rather drunk says, well, it rather reminds me of the of a Maltese goat. (laughs) 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 Well, we're on animals and and genitalia. I mean, the the funniest story, which is right at the beginning of your book, is on Nancy Mitford's tomb, there's a mole. And uh, there's a letter from an aunt, isn't there, about Mm. the little... I think I'm allowed to say this because it's just little golden... (laughs) <laughs> and it's... Dropping sea bombs like mad now. <laughs> but the point is, there is a Gloucestershire. She says, and it, the answer is, it's an old Gloucestershire, old term, Gloucestershire yeah. term for for the uh, female pudenda. But it's not the Gloucestershire term, as I because I live nearby, is wunt. I think is oh really? Uh, yeah, wunt. Wow. So not. <laughs> <laughs> so back on safer ground. So a tiny bit of trivia yes. for the end of this uh, tenuous link. So I asked the wonderful Nikki Dunn at Hayward Hill, at what order do they sell? You know, what's the best-selling list of Nancy's novel? What's top? What's bottom? And I wanted to ask the three of you 
Firstly, which do you think was the, be- the best-selling novel today? And where do you think The Blessing comes in the top five? So I'm going to start with you, Laura. What do you think is the best-selling Nancy Mitford novel today? Oh, God. Love in a Cold Climate. John? Well, I'd also go for that one. Andy? I'm going to say Wigs on the Green. It's actually Pursuit of Love. Uh-huh. <gasps> love in a Cold Climate's number two. Mm. And The Blessing's number three. And Wigs on the Green's number five. Oh, that's pretty interesting. So four is Don't Tell Alfred, is it? Or, yes, it is. Yeah. Four but is Don't Tell Alfred. In a way, Nancy's reputation surely was completely kind of occluded as a novelist in, by that one book that she wrote about mm. you and non-you. That's, I mean, if you were saying Nancy Mitford yes. to most people, and it still goes on today, Nikki Haslam is always doing this, the, the lists of things that are vulgar. Which but the, th- the Christmas trees are vulgar. I hadn't, I hadn't <laughs> you know. appreciated that, and this is a this is it was such a huge a, cultural moment, wasn't it? This I mean, cultural moment. This is the thing that happens. I'm with sorry, culture. I don't know this. What is what was the so, cultural moment? Well, you and non you, I, I don't actually have no idea what they stand for. Uh, upper class, upper class. Mm. But but Nancy Mitford wrote, conceived, and wrote the you and non you classifications very tongue in cheek, yeah. and affectionately, and as in the way with cultural moments. The tongue-in-cheek element rather fell away. And people wrote to her saying, you know, what is good form? Is it good for you? Like, you shouldn't say, for instance... What's the you and non right, you? So, okay, so, okay. So you so might say writing paper, but it, it, I can't remember which is which. Is yeah, it? No, note, note, note paper you can't say. Yeah. So yeah. pudding is you, but dessert <laughs> is non-you. And it, people, it was, became a parlour game. Everybody was... And, of course, right. what people get very anxious about whether they're getting the terms right. And, of course, as Andy says, it was sort of intended to be kind of funny. I mean, she didn't like people... People saying cheers was very non-new. She was a snob in some ways. She said Graham Greene's novels were full of pubs. She called him, she had a funny nickname for him, wasn't she? Like Grim Green or something. Really? I, d- I didn't know that. <laughs> no, is it in the letters? Oh, okay. she, yeah, it started because there is this thing in The Pursuit of Love where uh, the father, who is her own father, sort of says, oh, you mustn't talk about notepaper or something. And some professor picked up on this and said, can I quote you? Nancy, in my learned paper about philological (laughs) whatever. And then she said Stephen Spender, who was then at Encounter, encouraged her to write this. It wasn't even her idea in the first place, but it was the 50s by then and people were a bit more sort of, I don't know, combative about the whole thing. Mm. But at the same time, I know the Times had an advert for a you skiing party. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it, became, it, it became a thing, yeah. Because but, she'd escaped Paris by then, which was probably wise, because she knew her day was over in that sense and she could sort of plunder France instead and sell France to the English, yes, which that, they always quite like. Is that one of the reasons why this is her penultimate novel? So she writes, mm. as we were saying earlier, she writes... Three novels in six years, and then there's there's no further novels for another ten years. Yeah, she moved on to historical biography with no invented dialogue. <laughs> are, they, are they good? I haven't read any of them. I think the Pompadour one is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. they were tremendously successful, successful weren't they? Yeah. yeah, in their day, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, huge. And I mean, she, when she was dying, she wrote a biography of Frederick the Great. I mean, she was an admirable woman, really, completely self-taught. Like her sister Diana, you know Mosley, they were terribly intelligent. They'd read everything. They were they were really very brainy women. 
Sort of the, I was always sort of, always sort of like to think of them as the Kardashians of the uh, mid twentieth century, but um, I want to sort of bro- covered blue stocking. This is the thing. This is the thing, I, I mean, the thing I really want yeah, to talk about. Thing, I'm really yeah. intri- I'm really fascinated by this. I'm fascinated by what it says about the um, British, particularly that in the last ten years, it seems to me there's a real kind of. Mitford's as the Spice Girls thing mm. that's happened, mm. and with with Nancy as kind of righty Mitford, yeah, yeah. And, and Swastika Mitford, uh, yeah, and Swastika. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that has chicken keeping Mitford has that enhanced or diminished Nancy's reputation as a writer? That's that's. Really interesting. Um, As someone who's written a book about Take Six Girls, your latest book is is, is about all of them. Well, from that, I mean, I, you know, I was asked to do it. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what it sounds like? I've got pictures of them, or like a shrine to them at home, or something. My my memory is, say, thirty years ago. My memory is that Nancy Mitford, (laughs) thought of as a an autonomous writer, now. Nancy Mitford, one of the Mitford sisters. And I, you know, in light of what we've been talking about with the blessing, does that build her reputation? Does this book slightly harmed by the fact that we think of it as part of this soap opera? Mitford, I don't know. Yeah, Mitford industry. Kind yeah. Of thing. yeah, it is. An in- I was pretty living where you do, John. You must be those practically sort of dolls of them in the shops, or something, I should think. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's true. There's a lot of Mitford. Mitford tourism is big in sort of Oxfordshire, Gloucestershire. Is she your favourite? Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, her sisters all hated her, I think. But um, she is the constructor of the Mitford myth. I mean, without her, what would you... You'd have someone who was obsessed with Hitler, someone who married Mosley, for God's sake, <laughs> someone who was... Chickens. A, 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 she, chicken she, There's always the rogue one, isn't there, the chicken <laughs> uh, And someone who married a communist and supported Stalin. Yeah. So... Nancy, crazy girls. <laughs> uh, when she wrote *The Pursuit of Love* and sort of reimagined them through the prism of her light-filled imagination, I would say, whereas there's a darkness about some of them, no mistake. I think she she made that mythology, and it's from her that we get this. What you're talking about now, the sextet. You know, yes, the, that's very um, And we think it's a shame. I think we think it's a shame because I really, really enjoyed... I mean, I will read more than Nancy Mitford. And I, 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 I'm, I'm quite surprised by that because I, I'd sort of... I mean, you know, I was perfectly prepared to say Mitford's, it's all a bit dated, it's all over, you know. No, but actually, I found this book really... I thought about it. I mean, it really, it really drew me in. And I think she just writes... I mean, you know, it's she's also dis- bloody... There's some amazingly funny bits. The, 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 the nanny character. So the discipline of it. You know, yeah, yeah. That if it were just soap opera or, or an insight into the lives of the rich and privileged, well, all right. <laughs> you they know, are but, rich, but, though, aren't they? Well, it really yeah. shocked me when I read it again. They've all got about five houses. I know, it's really, it, it's quite depressing when you, the bits in Paris with these, you go in this, what's such a large garden to have in the middle of Paris? <laughs> I didn't know there were any gardens in the middle of Paris. But I love, I love Nanny because the whole thing is obviously, she was a Francophile and the whole, one of the lovely things is taking an English nanny and putting them in the middle of Paris. But of course, when the, she hates everything about France and the food and everything. But the brilliant thing is she comes back 
And there's a wonderful pa- passage here, which I'll read. She's over the clanking cup, cups of tea with her cronies, you know, the other nannies mm-hmm. sitting. And she said, say what you choose. France is a wonderful country. Oh, it's wonderful. Take the shops, dear. They groan with food, just like pre-war. I only wish you could see the meat. Great carcasses for anybody to buy. The offal brimming over onto the pavement. <laughs> Animals like elephants. <laughs> they could have suet every day if they knew how to make a nice suet pudding. But there's one drawback. Nobody there can cook. <laughs> it's just great. I mean, that... And I think there's, the thing is, she's very... She's a great social observer, isn't she? She is, and she... I mean, she's just... She is so funny. She's just... I mean, you were talking about her letters. Her letters to Evelyn War are sort of gut-wrenchingly funny, some of them. It's when she found her own voice, and she's completely relaxed writing to Evelyn War, who was about the only man in her acquaintance who didn't snipe at her talent, actually... Cyril Connolly was absolutely furious with the portrait of it. He said something like, yeah, she carries on, she nags away at it or something like that. (laughs) Um, Very snide about her. Mm. But when I wrote that book, the biography of her, because she'd done a play in the 50s, a sort of boulevard comedy, which unbelievably was directed by Peter Brook. (laughs) What's it? It's uh, it's bizarre. marvellous Before he did his white box and everything. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's brilliant. That's amazing. It would be good if they put it in the book. That is a very cool thing. So I wrote to him and I said, do you remember her at all? And he wrote back this lovely little letter and he said, what I remember about Nancy was that she was light... But not in the English sense, in the French sense, lightness as an absolute value, Mm. i.e. not the opposite of serious, but lightness having a value of its own. And I thought about that a lot. Exactly what the flavour of the book is. That's kind of brilliant, actually. That's wonderful, yeah. Um, uh, The book, interestingly, was dedicated to Evelyn Waugh. I just read this great little bit from Laura's book, but... In, in 1951, saying, reviewers are lazy brutes. It wasn't very well reviewed. No. Reviewers are lazy brutes. They want to say, here is another Mitford, sparkling and irresponsible in her own inimitable way. They can't bear to see a writer grow up. Mm. They have no influence at all. Everyone I know delights in the blessing, and I'm constantly buoyed up with pride at the dedication. Which is a very generous mm. thing from one writer mm. to another. Mm. And I, you can kind of see that War would have loved this book. Yeah, he was completely not spiteful in that way to her. Because, I mean, some of her sentences are terribly lazy. She'll write sort of, they had tea and all was merry or something like that. But it's <laughs> quite, you know how... It, it always <laughs> reminds me of the great Kingsley Amos line about Martin Amos's prose. He, does, <laughs> he needs to have more sentences like, they finished their drinks and left. <laughs> <laughs> but that is so true, isn't yeah, it? it? Because is, every sentence now is so goddamn rightly, you know... It's like being hit over the head with a thesaurus. And she is that casualness. Yeah. And he did criticise her for being amateurish war. And then I think he sort of realised that her defects and her qualities were as one and just went along with liking it. Right, your tenuous link. (laughs) Right, John, here it comes. Can we we run into that again? I'm sorry, I haven't time. (laughs) Well, I was was just going to go back to Hayward Hill again for very quickly um, and thinking about Mayfair. So Hayward Hayward Hill's in Mayfair. And I've always been interested in in Mayfair because it's this kind of weird place in that it was also a kind of centre of of 60s culture. And bizarrely, so uh, Hayward Hill's at 10 um, Curzon Street and number 9 Curzon Street is the flat owned by Harry Nilsson. Do you know what happened in that flat by Harry Nilsson, Andy? I am sorry to report that it was the the scene of the passing of Cass Elliot. And? And? 
Um, next to Hayward Hill. Amazing. I'm not sure if it's the same side yeah. of the street or not. The and next number. Keith Moon. Keith Moon. Moon. And it's also like Mayfair was the place that the Beatles moved to when they first That's moved right. to London. That's the right. only place they lived together was in Mayfair. So I was thinking about that and I wondered, well, are there any connections between Nancy Mitford and the Beatles? So I'm going to ask you all. Um, there were two I've found, <laughs> two oh, connections, stop. and I actually think that Andy should get one of them. If he doesn't get one of them, he's I'm not really going to have to hand in my badge because I didn't spot the Keith Moon one. <laughs> okay, so can anyone think of a connection between the two? I, I'm I'm looking at my connections folder, and I'm you see, you're, you're, I'm seeing a blank space. A blank I'm space. So, Andy, I'm going to I'm going to give you a hint because you might get it. Think of Abbey Road. Think of the tracks on Abbey Road and the books that Nancy... Sun King. Sun King. Oh, yes, ah, the Beatles had a song yeah. called Sun King and uh, Nancy Mitford wrote a book yeah, called so, Sun King. So Hunter Davis says, go on. That, um, says that... Uh, John Lennon was reading it? It was reading it or read a review of it, at least. So that's where it came from. <laughs> wow, um, that's cool. Yeah, that's quite cool. And the second link, um, we're going to hear it, and it's Jessica Mitford, and it sounds something like this. <laughs> How can we make one of the Beatles <laughs> the worst songs? <laughs> <laughs> Even a little bit worse. <laughs> or better. Or better. Well, it sounds more like musical. The chorus is the best, actually, which is coming up in a second. <laughs> Why? How? Under what circumstances did this happen? Oh, sure, sure, sure. We've got to hear the cut. <laughs> She's getting ready to go. Next will super hammer. So that's it. That's my, my life my is tennis complete. Tennis. Oh, wow. Wow, that's wonderful. Oh, come on. Why? Seriously. So it's from 1995, extraordinarily. Uh, Is it on the Exotic Beatles or something? No, she started doing a kind of cabaret act. Why is it? I think she did it at a party once and then was encouraged and, and did a little cabaret acts in various nightclubs around San Francisco. <gasps> and this, she there were two tracks that were actually released as a single. I was going to say, Decker. that's the single. <laughs> Decker and the Deck Tones. Oh. The name of the man. Well. <laughs> the One speechless as One usual. The speechless as usual. That was wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much, everyone. Uh, yeah, great. And thank you in particular, Laura, for coming and opening, maybe dusting off the uh, the reputation of Nancy Mitford, and particularly the blessing, which I think we, we, we all feel is, is hugely still worth reading. That's um, so nice that you liked it, really. Oh, really? Oh, I, if I had to choose one book w- that was the opposite of books about blokes and cocaine it would be it would be the blessing i absolutely loved it i i loved it thank you so much for for suggesting we read it it was great well it's been lovely i think that's everything i should probably say if you want to participate and suggest things that we might be discussing in future podcasts please go to the uh, our twitter account which is at backlisted pod or our facebook account but thank you for listening If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, 
you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Lock Listed, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.